iTunes presents Meet the Filmmaker at the Tribeca Film Festival. Once again, welcome to the Apple Store Soho. Uh, my name's Frank, and I'm very glad that you can make it to today's special event. Uh, here now, joining me from IndieWire.com and moderating today's event uh, is Eugene Hernandez to talk a little bit more about IndieWire and Snag Films and introduce today's special guest. Thank you. Hey, sorry for the delay. Uh, you know, there's a festival going on, so there's screenings, and we have two filmmakers today, one of whom is here now, another of whom will be with us momentarily. Uh, we have two films to talk about, one of which is opening in theaters, or is open in theaters now, another of which is playing at the festival, just finishing up as we speak. Um, so we're going to get started now with the first filmmaker who's part of this duo we're going to be meeting today. Uh, her film just opened in theaters on Wednesday. It's an acclaimed independent film that has been traveling the world, um, as has the director. And she's here with her daughter today as well. Uh, please join me in welcoming So Young Kim. Your daughter may join us at some point, right? Yes. Good. Thank you for waiting. And I'm sorry that um, we're running behind. So Brad will be joining us very shortly. So Brad is, uh, So and Brad make films together. They direct films and they produce each other's work. They collaborate. Um, Brad's film, The Exploding Girl, is playing this afternoon at Tribeca at the festival. Uh, your film just opened in theaters on Wednesday. Mm -hmm. So it's a terrific um, opportunity to talk to both of you uh, this afternoon. Um, tell me a bit, and we'll ask Brad when he gets here as well, but tell me a bit about this collaboration, because it, we talked a little bit about it back in Berlin at the festival. Uh, the two of them had their, their two films, their two respective features at this year's Berlin Film Festival. And tell me about the collaboration, how the two of you started working together and how you sort of got to know each other and how that sort of began. It's a, it's a unique collaboration. Yeah. yeah um, when we were at a Q&A for Brad's film just a couple nights ago, somebody asked the same thing. And first thing Brad said was, we fight all the time. So it's out there already. Um, so that's part of our collaborating process. But in the beginning, you know, we went to school together in Chicago, and that's how we met. And we didn't really uh, collaborate on each other's projects. You know, Brad was studying sculpture, and I was studying um, performance art and, and installations and things like that. So basically, I asked him or hired him to shoot some footage for me so that I could make these experimental films for the backdrops of in installations or performances. And then I would do something for him. I'd, I'd do some sound pieces so that he could put them in his pieces. So we were kind of like work for hire. And then gradually, I think um, throughout, you know, especially for the past, I think five, six years or so, we've been trying to collaborate a little bit more and also, you know, participate by editing each other's films or giving notes on each other's scripts or, you know, producing each other's work. But we always kind of follow this policy that there's only one bus driver and that's the rule we always follow and that bus driver is in control and the other person basically does the support work to allow that, you know, person to direct the project. Well, we'll talk more with Brad about this also in a minute, but um, let's talk about Treeless Mountain for a moment. The movie is in theaters now. Congratulations. Had an incredible run on the festival circuit. Um, tell us a bit about what the film's about, and then we're going to take a look at the trailer. Um, Treeless Mountain is about these two sisters um, who are on their own for the summer because their mother leaves them with their aunt um, to look for their missing father. So it's a very simple story about their um, time spent without adults, basically, and their family around them. So, yeah. So let's watch the trailer, and then I'll ask you a bit about the inspiration for the film, how you made it, where you made it, that sort of thing. So let's take a look, let's take a look at the trailer for Treeless Mountain. So just for a little bit of background, and, and has anybody yet had a chance to see the movie, Treeless Mountain? If you haven't, it's playing in theaters now, so we're going to spend a few minutes here convincing you why you should see it. Uh, telling you a bit about... about um, I'm sorry, tell me the theater it's playing at, because I just forgot. Uh, film Forum and so also, I think, Ridgefield Park in New Jersey. So in New so. Jersey and at <laughs> Film Forum. Film Forum's just around the corner. So, um, Maybe as a way for people to get some background on um, the story, 
Talk a bit about your inspiration, and then I know a lot of people in the audience are aspiring filmmakers. We'll talk about the filmmaking process in a moment as well. Um, but just so people understand sort of where you're coming from, uh, what was the original inspiration um, for the it's, movie? Yeah, it's based on my childhood of growing up in Korea, but um, I started to write this story in about like 2003 or so, and I had this assignment for a creative writing class that I was taking, and um, I, was, I, I wrote a short story about these two girls who are grilling grasshoppers and selling them. So from there on, I just collected all these things that I remember of growing up in Korea and then put them together and I yeah and then I developed the first draft of that story around 2005 or something yeah and what is your I know a lot of writers tend to ask this question I mean what, what is your personal writing process like I mean uh, are you uh, you're working from your own inspirations your own experiences um, as a writer, I mean, do you keep diaries? How, how do you, what is your, what is your process like and what, how has it evolved yeah. as you've matured as a filmmaker, as an artist? Yeah, I, I think to be honest, I'm a terrible writer, so I don't have like a particular process. Yeah. And then, um, I just keep like notebooks and, and sketchbooks of like notes or little incidences or, um, anything that kind of interests me. Um, I just collect them a lot, and then um, like Brad is a fantastic writer, and like he has five thousand different ideas, and he could write five thousand pages like in a, a week or something. But I write like page one to ten over and over and over again for about six months, and and then I, I add another page in the next two months or something. So it's it's really a painful process for me. So yeah, it's my least favorite of the whole filmmaking um, journey. So yeah, um, so I don't have a particular process that I go through, but um, I I think for Treeless, I at certain point I felt like the two characters that I was writing about and and their story was complete enough for me to say okay I'm ready to shoot the film now so yeah um, I'm curious because you've obviously been reading you know I'm, I'm sure you must have read some of the reviews and you've been talking with other journalists about your film there was the piece in the New York Times recently that talked about this sort of American realism mm -hmm. um, how do you how do you process the characterization of your work and the grouping of that work with other potentially similar films. I mean, do you think about this? Or is it sort of, I know yeah. filmmakers sometimes don't like to sort of think they're yeah. part of a, of a movement or anything like that, but it's interesting when critics, you know, gi give, you know, sort of an approach or, or give a sort of a structure to work that might seem very, you know, different. Um, I think, one of the reasons I think when uh, when that happens is to I think give exposure to filmmakers, you know. So it's in a way it's trying to help us out and and help us, you know, make our next films and make it easier or, or shorter of a process. And and I'm certainly thankful for the attention that you know my work has gotten. And also like that group of filmmakers who are mentioned in that article are so great and and they're definitely inspiring. And you know we are all like striving to make a better film and hopefully our next films will be better so it's a it's a great group of filmmakers and you know i think we are at a very exciting um time in filmmaking for our generation in a sense that there aside from the filmmakers that i mentioned in that article there are so many other filmmakers like andrew bajowski and also uh lee isaac chung and like you know, young filmmakers who are really uh, trying something new and getting inspiration from Europe or Asia and, and making them their own, you know. So I feel like it's very dynamic time for filmmaking. So. You talk about filmmakers being inspired. Uh, what type of artists, whether they be filmmakers or others, uh, have inspired you in your work? Um, are there particular writers, artists, filmmakers, mm -hmm. other disciplines that, that you've looked to as as sort of, you know, important for you? Yeah, I think when I first started making experimental films and also um, when I was going to school, I was hugely influenced by um, Maya Darren and also Pina Bausch. And then um, the Wooster Group is fantastic, you know, performance art artist group, and they do fantastic productions with 
videos and live cameras and also you know and the way they develop their work is so interesting and you know that's that's the inspiration I came from but along the way I was switching to more narrative films you know they're just great masters that you aspire to be but you know you you don't know if you ever get there before you die so I don't know <laughs> you know um, and they're painters and you know they're and they're musicians and composers and you know it's it's um I think it's overwhelming when you are thinking of all these um, like great filmmakers that are uh, our contemporaries also like in the history of cinema so I don't know it's it seems like there's never enough time to watch enough films you know so well you know there are a number of filmmakers in the audience and there's also this event is being podcast via iTunes so filmmakers everywhere have the opportunity to listen to this let's talk a bit about your we talked about. I asked you about the writing process. Let's talk about your filmmaking process. Tell us a bit about uh, where you made the film, how you made the film, and some of the challenges that you met and then were able to overcome in bringing the film to completion. Yeah, I think to start off with, you know, um, I'm based in the United States, but this film is a film that I really wanted to make in Korea and shoot there, and also it's my hometown that I always imagined that I would, you know, go there on location and make this film. So it was incredibly difficult to raise the financing and and convince people that this is something that you should really, you know, put your money into. But luckily we got these, I have these fantastic producers, Jay, Lars, and Ben, and Brad as well, who really, you know, pushed for the film and became the champions of the film to um, get the financing. Actually, we got the financing two weeks before we started shooting. So it was incredibly last minute. And then when we got to Korea, you know, we had half the, almost half the crew were Americans and the other half were Koreans. And we had one translator, one translator, and I was one of them. And then I had an assistant who was from Chicago and he was, you know, Korean American who spoke English more than Korean kind of like me <laughs> but so he was actually the translator for the cruise and um, it was such a it was an intensely rocky beginning but um, something really magical happened along the way where like these two groups of people who are from very different cultures really connected together and we became this wonderful like single unit family and um, yeah so that's something that happened um, that I'm incredibly thankful for um, and then yeah and then there of course working with kids um, which was challenging but I have to say it was it was inc an incredible experience so yeah we were talking um, yesterday we had Lee Daniels here and he was talking about the importance of casting, and he comes from a background of casting. Uh, working with children, in your case, uh, tell me about the casting experience for this film, what you were going for, how you went about casting this movie, um, given that you were working in a foreign country. What were some of the, um, some of the ways you went about casting this, this film, and what were you really thinking about as you were doing that? Um, yeah. Well, when we first got to Korea, we tried to see if we wanted to go through a talent agency, which is an organization they usually pick children out when they're really young and they foster them to become these pop stars and really? movie stars. So, but we, you know, quickly decided that's like completely a wrong way to go about it. And then we went into elementary schools and kindergartens. And in Korea, you have to know somebody and they have to make introduction. Um, you know for you and then um, so it took a while to get started mm -hmm. but once you know one school then you could get introduction into another school so it became this kind of domino effect mm -hmm. and then um, so we we got permission to go into schools to observe kids and see how they interact in the class and then got permission to interview them and then videotape them um, so that's how we found Hyun and then Sunghee who's a little little girl she's um, she lives in a foster care in Korea, and my assistant from Korea, she was doing a community service where the school goes into orphanages and foster cares to do, you know, interaction with young kids, and and um, she would send me photographs of the girls that she met through this program, and she was one of them. Switching gears a little bit, I mean, you studied 
you studied art and in telling this story, which was very personal, you said you had wanted to tell it for a while. Did you always intend to move into film? You could have certainly explored telling this story through other disciplines. Um, what was your inspiration to ultimately move into film? Um, it was, I don't know, it seemed kind of natural thing for me to do. Like I worked on Brad's film, his first film called Salt, and we shot that in Iceland. And we couldn't find anybody to really help us. So basically we kind of, there were three, I mean, it was a three-person crew, and I kind of did the sound work, and then I drove the car, cooked <laughs> cook for the crew and the cast, and it was something that was incredibly hands-on experience for me, and I think that really made me feel like, oh, it doesn't have to be like 60-person crew and massive trucks and big lights. It could mm -hmm. be as intimate as just three people, mm -hmm. you know, working with a video camera. So that's when um, I felt like maybe there is a ch you know opportunity for me to tell you know more narrative stories and when we were living in Iceland working on Brad's film I I mean that was when I was starting to feel like an immigrant all over again so that's where my first feature which is about you know teenage immigrant girl living in North America that story came about so yeah very good well I want to give a uh folks in the audience a chance to ask you some specific questions about your work or the way you make your work. Um, there is a microphone that is coming around and there's a gentleman in the fourth row there who has a question so we'll get a microphone to you in just a moment and uh, give you a chance to ask a couple questions. So yeah, there we go. Um, yes, hi, my name is Daniel and um, I think some of the most interesting films are films made in foreign countries because we really get an opportunity to learn about another culture and way of life, and I always appreciate that, so I thank you for that. Um, I also wanted to ask you, when you wrote, wrote this script and wanted to make this movie and were so passionate about it, were you thinking, I'm going to make this movie and it's going to be for a Korean audience in Korea? Or were you thinking, I'm going to make this movie, it's going to be for a Korean audience in Korea, as well as a Korean audience in the United States? Or just, what were you thinking in terms of like who your audience was? And did that affect how you went about getting money for it? Yeah, I, I, the problem is that I wasn't thinking that at all. So now <laughs> it's, it's kind of up in the air. And um, You weren't thinking about your in ultimate audience. Right, so right. And I, and, it, and I think that habit comes from making my first film. And when I made In Between Days, it was more like, oh, I'm going to make this film and it's going to be for a few of our friends, you know, and we shot it on video. And then... Uh, I just felt like I could make it into an experimental film or it could be a short film of 10 minutes and that's how and then you know luckily my first feature had enough material <laughs> to be made into a feature film so I think that kind of mentality kind of carried over to Treeless Mountain so I wasn't really thinking of oh is this gonna be right for the Korean audience or American audience or European audience per se but I think when I was working on the film and editing and putting the film together, I wasn't, you know, I would try to ignore that, like, little, you know, person talking behind my head going, hey, what about that music? Or, hey, what about that score? Or, you know, because to me, what was really important when I was putting, finishing the film was that I have to be really honest with myself and I can't, I can't try to force this film into something else than what it wants to be or what it has to be, so... I don't know if that helps ans to answer your question. This idea of, of thinking or planning for it or who your intended audience is, um, is that something now that you feel you will do or are doing differently as you anticipate your next project? Do you feel like, like should filmmakers not, should, should filmmakers get connect, tied into that or not? What, what, what's from your experience of that? I mean, yeah, what I kind of guidance would you give? <laughs> I don't know. I went to art school, you know, so <laughs> it's, I think <laughs> going to art school is kind of like, you know, you have to make um, work that's always kind of so selfish and, and kind of, I don't know, I, but I don't know what to think yet about the audience uh, and how the film will be received, um, you know, in the, in the future because it's, it's just been released, but um, I think 
only thing that I could really say is that I feel, I feel strongly that I made the film that I set out to make, and I made it as honestly as I could. So um, I think that's the only thing that I could be honest about, and hopefully, I'm just crossing my fingers all the time that hopefully people will enjoy the film and like it. So. We have another question here in the second row. Stand up and ask Hi, your my name is Lisa. Um, you said that uh, in your films that you and your husband uh, make sure that you're the, the bus driver, the driver. Um, but I'm curious if you're editing one another's films, it seems that your own kind of rhythmic style and mm-hmm. would, would kind of encroach upon the others. And I'm wondering how you, you, you deal with that. Yeah, editing is tricky because both Brad and I really, really love editing. So it's mostly about like trying to shove the other person off the chair so one person could get on the computer. Um, yeah, it's really tricky, you know. So, um, but I feel that we're incredibly lucky and fortunate that we have each other because. Um, you know, we don't beat around the bush about like, oh, that's so nice, you know, it's okay, because we, we're pretty like crude and hard and mean to each other. Hey, that really sucks. You got to fix that, you know, or we're, we don't like waste words to make the other person feel better when we're editing. So, <laughs> I mean, we fight a lot and it's very intense fighting, but it's always about like that cut, you know, it should be four frames shorter. If it's four frames longer, people are going to like, you know, walk out of the theater. You know, it's it's constantly like this. So, um, yeah, but editing is one of the most, um, yeah, yeah, intense periods that we have in the whole process of filmmaking. But yeah, so we, we do negotiate. Yeah. I'd like to pick up on that and ask you just about the edit. For those, again, filmmakers listening in or those in the audience, um, what is it that you like? Some, why is it that you like the editing process? Uh, putting aside the, the, the battle that, that, that takes place, what is it about that process, the process of editing that you seem to be so turned on about? I mean, what, um, why is it so attractive to you? Yeah, um, well, it's almost like if you're an editor you kind of have to take your director's head off and you get to yell at your director all the time and like call the person names and like criticize how bad the director is and I can't believe that take, you're wasting film stock on this. And so it's kind of fun because I'm kind of yelling at myself all the time and like, oh, it's just really embarrassing and humiliating experience. But at the same time, I feel like it's almost like I could, I throw the entire script out the window and and it's an opportunity for me to look at the film in completely in a different light. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there's so much excitement in that because, yeah. um, you know, we try to take some time off between the production and then when we start editing so that the person who's editing comes in with the fresh eyes as if yeah. you've never seen the footage before, yeah. as if you have no uh, preconception of what the film should be. So Now we can see yeah, if Brad agrees with you or not. <laughs> <laughs> this is <laughs> Bradley Rest Gray. Welcome to Apple Hi, Store. Thanks, sir. Brad, Brad's film uh, Exploding Girl just played this afternoon. He just came over from his Q and A. I hope yeah. it went well. Yes, it was, it was good. Thank you. Uh, we were just talking about um, the editing process, and So was saying that you both like editing a lot, but that it's also a battle when you're editing to against each other. We argue. I said we argue a lot when we're editing. Yeah, we argue a lot anyway. And so I was asking her why, despite putting that part aside, I was asking her why the editing process is so attractive to her as a filmmaker. And I would probably ask you the same thing, just like what, what it, uh, I mean, So was talking about, um, it gives you a chance to sort of criticize your director. In this case, she's criticizing herself, thinking like, why did I do that take? Why did I not do it this way? And it seems like you were, what I was going to follow up and say was it sounds like you learn a lot in the editing process yes. about your directing process. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's more like editing is like you're saving, like you're like, you can fix things in editing, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so it's like you have, everything went wrong, it's like you find a way of solving it. And yeah. I, I had a, a really, really, really great editing teacher at school named uh, William Hogsey who uh, cut a film called Hoop Dreams, uh, you got, which was 300 hours on VHS tape. 
So it's like you can never complain to him because he edited that film, Deck to Deck, and he would remind you. No, I mean, he doesn't remind it and it's sort of like I'm famous, but he reminds you of this sort of like, I tried to show him something. I was working on a flatbed at school and I didn't have the sound sunk. I just wanted to know if this shot worked. Like, can you do this? And he was like, I don't know. I can't hear it. And I'm like, just visually, does it work? He's like, I don't know. I can't hear it. You don't know until you like put it together properly and then you do it that way. And I think that his approach of sort of being very thoughtful about what you're doing is something we kind of carried over into this sort of digital editing and, and being very precise about making a decision and, and not showing a cut to anybody until you're sort of like ready with, with the, the project. And I think even as we edit, because you know, you, you edit scenes together and then you move them around as sort of like the general sort of, I guess that's kind of a documentary approach, but that's sort of the approach that we use with our films. And it's the same thing that, that we'll, so we'll finish this, you know, I'm rambling, I don't know what I'm saying anymore. We'll finish a scene, and then it'll be a little fat, a little bigger than you, you need it, and then um, show it to the other person, and the other person would do the moving it around in the project, and then also would go in there and, and tighten it, take out things. And, and, and that's what's so great about working in collaboration, because you might have a scene that's three minutes and 40 seconds long, and it just doesn't feel right. And it doesn't balance out with the rhythm of the rest of the film. And you don't know, especially if it's your project, you might have a really personal connection to a lot of the things in the scene. Somebody else can come in. And if, and if like, she cuts the scene down to two minutes and I don't, I don't know what it is that she changed, then it's a successful sort of like decision. You know? Then oh, it's really? like, okay, you can't say, oh, but I wanted that there because you forgot about it. You know, <laughs> that's sort of like how we work together as editors. Now, that's interesting. That, that, that's, that's a really interesting um, sort of... Uh, process to go through so that you have that, that kind of feedback from someone else who can, who can do that, even if it, as hard as it might be at times, when you do rem remember what was taken out, um, I'm sure it's even better when you don't, like you're, like you're saying. So. Yeah, cause you realize, yeah, you realize you don't need it. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. not, it wasn't meant to be in the film. So I was talking about this idea a minute ago before you walked up about like maybe even arguing over like four frames like that, that you know and obviously editing and the, the, you know, there's filmmakers in the audience and this event is being podcast on iTunes and there's filmmakers who will be listening to this um, and for those who are aspiring to be filmmakers um, I think it's important to sort of put a pin in that and so you know people understand that like those four frames can, can mean a lot to an audience to a filmmaker to the process of editing which is you know the construction of that, of that work yeah, yeah, yeah. There's 20, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One sixth of a second. Yeah, yeah. It, it's your timing. It's like, and you watch it and you watch, you know, we're, was, I watched So's film the other day and it's like you have this rhythm in your head and you're like, it should cut, it should cut, oh, it should cut here. And it, <laughs> and it, and it does because we, you spend so long at the end mm -hmm. of watching it and feeling out how that mm -hmm. extra time mm -hmm. is used, yeah. you know. Well, we're going to take more questions from the audience in a moment, but switching gears, uh, Brad, your film uh, played here at the festival today. Um, tell us, tell the audience, uh, for folks who obviously haven't seen it yet, uh, but we'll have the opportunity, um, a bit about what the film's about, and then we'll talk a little bit about the making of the film as well. Yeah, the film's called The Exploding Girl, and it's about uh, a girl that comes home uh, for a spring break vacation from college, and she along the way um, picks up a friend of hers that he, she was friends with in high school and she hasn't seen him since he started college. So it's sort of this uh, moment when you see a friend, you haven't seen them in a long time and, um, and, and they just spend time together. And, and while she's away, she has a boyfriend from college who's calling her on the phone and, and she wishes he was calling more often. <laughs> Something like that. Well, I, I asked so earlier to talk about the inspiration for her film. I think it's only fair uh, for those listening in to hear about the, your inspiration for your film. Uh, yeah, I just... Um, I had a, another film that I was sh uh, supposed to shoot last year, and, and it fell through, so or we got put on hold. So I, uh, I, um, I suddenly had a sort of year off. You know, I was told that I had to wait one year on that project, and I tried... I was really upset, obviously... But at, I went for a long walk, and at the end of the walk, I thought about Zoe, who's the actress in my film. Her name is Zoe Kazan. She had auditioned for the other film um, that I did, uh, that I was working on. And so I knew about her, and I really liked her as an actress. And I thought, 
oh, well, I could take this year and, and, and try to make something positive out of it. Like, I can make another film. I can make something different. And, and it would be really great to work with somebody from the beginning before you write it and, and sort of try that approach. So I contacted Zoe and I asked if she wanted to be in a movie and work together. And she said, yeah, what's the film about? And I said, I didn't know. But does she want to do it anyway? And then she said, yeah. So we just went for walks and then we kind of developed some of the, some of the story ideas together. I failed to offer you water. You just walked up, and it's really warm out it's today. Great. So Thanks. hand you that bottle of water. Um, for those listening to this podcast, it's a 85-degree day in New York City, our first warm day of the year, yeah. I think, and uh, yeah. we're all adjusting to that. Um, how was the reaction to the film here, and did you notice any difference um, since, since you showed it? Uh, I mean, the last time I saw you, you showed it in Berlin. Um, do you notice a difference in the way the film is, is viewed or the kind of response you get? from a European versus an American audience? Anything that is worth noting in that regard? I don't just, um, we shot the film here in New York and we showed it, I've sh I've showed, we showed it in Berlin, I showed it in Spain and, and I think at both of those locations, it's like people asked where, they're like, where'd you shoot the film? And, and the, like 70% of the film takes place outside, you know, so y you would have thought that people would have recognized New York. Um, and then today somebody was like, it doesn't look like New York and she's from here, so. I, you know, and she thought it was really tight, and it was like this is our widest, you know, film, our sort of widest shot. So you never can predict how somebody's going to, somebody's going to react to it. But I think the audiences here have been really perceptive, and and there's something also about this is the first one we ever made in English, so um, that's different, and this is the first time we've ever shown our English language film in America, so. It's kind of like the first time I think we've shown anything without subtitles. It was like that Tribeca here. So that's different and kind of cool, and everybody understands exactly what's being said because n not a lot said in either one of our films. Yeah. I'm wondering what you think about, and you know, there's so much talk. We talked a little bit earlier about the, the A.O. Scott article about new realism, and, and, and so was also mentioning some of the other independent filmmakers who weren't mentioned in the article but who are, you know, equally prolific and, and also uh, influential, folks like Andrew Bajowski, others. Um, I'm wondering what you feel is the, for lack of a better word, climate for independent filmmakers in this country right now. Um, some of the, again, for the folks in the audience, those listening on the podcast, what sort of environment they're aspiring to be a part of. Um, it feels like it's as challenging or if not more challenging than ever to raise money to make a film and yet tools and technology have made it um, in some ways easier than ever to put together a movie. Um, you two have been doing this together for a while now. How do you look at sort of that climate, if there is one, for, for making work independently and, you know, getting it made and then ultimately trying to get it out there? Yeah, I think if you think about that, then you're not going to want to make a film because it's <laughs> really miserable sounding and um, if you would try to examine it it's probably going to just look worse but like it's always really hard to make a movie and nobody ever wants to give you money you know it's just that's like the whole thing it's like it, you know if you're making a film in Hollywood they don't want to give you money they want to know that it's going to come back. They want to know that there's going to be a star in it, and then they can sort of like start figuring out how much money they plan to get back based on those those numbers, you know. So if you're making a film that you really care about, you're basically the only person that really cares about it. But that's enough to get the movie made, you know. And and I think that's the thing that you should always like keep as your forefront thought in your mind, and definitely don't think about like, is this going to sell? Because <laughs> it's it's really, 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 uh, it, it's things changing so much too. You know, it's like if you start a movie now, you're not going to finish it for a while. So it's like you don't know what's going to be. When we finished our first film, we couldn't show it in Berlin uh, because we shot on, on DV and they didn't have a digital projector. And this is like 2003. It's like, you know, not that long ago at all. So, and then, you know, we had to get a print made, which was nice that we got a print of that film. But, uh, I, you know, we just showed our new film, um, in the theater, and it's the image is six times bigger than HD. It's like we had to shrink the image in order to, to screen it on HD. And um, it's like we shot on this red camera, that's, and 
and uh, somebody asked, you know, if it was on film, and then somebody asked again, well, did you transfer to film? What did we just watch? You know what I mean? They didn't. They didn't know. You couldn't tell. You couldn't tell if it's like if, was that digital or was it a, a, was it a print? I mean, how do you feel about the red? I, I want to ask you about the red camera simply because a number of other filmmakers have been talking about it lately, um, just from a filmmaking point of view and from a director's point of view. How did you feel about that, that camera? And is it, is it satisfying now when you look at the film? And, and yeah, it's, I think it's amazing. I think it's really amazing. We shot So's film on, on 16 millimeter, and it's gorgeous. It's unbelievable, and it, and it has this feeling of light that's like you can't get with, unless you're shooting on film. But that stock cost 100, we spent at least $100,000 on, on film, which is totally worth it, it was great. Um, but like, we shot the same amount on, on the red and it was just buying hard drives. And they're cheaper now than they were when we shot the film six months ago, you know. Um, so it's like a gig and a half per minute. It's a massive file size. Gig and a half, uh, 1.5 gigs per, per minute. minute of footage. Okay. It's huge. It's in, it's like if you open up one frame of the film on your, we have like a 32 inch uh, Apple display. It's like it doesn't fit on the display. It's like four times bigger than a display. So, you you, but the there's been a lot of. Um, first of all, I think the camera is really amazing. You're shooting with 35 millimeter lenses, and you have the same depth of field as 35. It looks really, really, really great, and um, it has 10 stops of light, and film is about 15. But usually, you're within that range anyway, so you can't really see the difference. And uh, it weighs about the same as a 35 millimeter camera, which is much heavier than we're used to, but but fine for Eric, who had to deal with the camera. And um, but the post-production workflow, there's been a lot of people who've heard that it's really difficult. Uh, but it's it, Apple has worked with Red to get the the. I'm going to use the terminology wrong, the codex or whatever it is, to figure it out. And when you get every time you hit play and stop on the camera, then you can just you plug the camera into your computer and then you see it like a file, but it's not a clip, it's a folder, and you pull that folder over and it transfers over, da -da 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 -da, and then you open it up, and your red file is there, and it says R3D, uh, .r3d, and you don't, you don't look at that, because uh, that's your sort of negative, right? Again, this is, again, it's like hard to explain it, a little bit, but what I'm saying is underneath that, there's four QuickTime files, and they're tiny, they're like 4K or 9K, they're just tiny, tiny files, but they reference that, kind of like freehand references a photo that you might have, but you can work on it in a different way and you can change it and it works fast. So you just take that, you open that QuickTime file at whatever size you want. And I used a uh, 1K image, which is like one half the size of HD. Put it into Final Cut Pro, it plays uh, totally fine. It's totally, in it's in completely in focus and it can play uh, pretty much real time. And, and just edited that and that, you create your EDL out of that. It's, yeah. And then you just go straight to the um, online, and they just the footage just yo. It's really <laughs> sounds like that too when you turn it on. It it, it was great. It was really easy. It, we didn't have any post production problems at all. We had a lot of post production problems with the year. Yeah. Such as <laughs> the frame rate in Korea, which they transferred the video footage from film to video, was. Uh, indistinguishable and the, the time code was not proper so we couldn't reference the original footage without first fixing the logarithm difference between the time code they had and the time code that we needed so um, it was a really hard uh, beginning of the project and again that's a difference a big difference between working on film and then trying to edit on a computer you need to make sure that you can go back to your original footage but if you're working in digital that steps sort of taken care of so. Was there a point in your filmmaking where you were stubborn about the transition to video? This seems like the RED camera, has, if you ever were stubborn about it, has convinced you otherwise. But I, I know a lot of filmmakers that, you know, you look back three or four years, just couldn't imagine leaving 16. Yeah. Yeah, we, I did my, I did, I was dying to shoot 35 in school, but it was too expensive. And, and I shot my thesis project on, on 16 millimeter. On, we used a Bolex and we used a... Uh, um, an Aton 16 millimeter camera, which is really beautiful, beautiful camera, and uh, and I edited on a flatbed, 
and um, it was really great. So I was like really excited to shoot on 35, and the next project was going to be in Iceland, and we were applying for the government of Iceland to give us, uh, it was like a million dollar budget <laughs> uh, on 35 millimeter and maybe shoot it in black and white. And then we didn't get the money, but we bought a house there. So we were like, well, we have this video camera. And, and I had shot something with a video camera in Japan uh, about six months before then and realized there's all these things you can do with video that you can't with film. Like you, could, you can go in and out of a subway. You can make a take longer than 12 minutes. You, you, the sound is already there. So I could just shoot a film by myself without a sound person and put the microphone on the camera. The camera's so light, you can like, you know, you can like sort of crane shots. You can do things you couldn't do. And so we thought, let's, and we had found the girl for the film, and once you sort of find the sort of soul of the film, we just decided, let's move forward. And I think we were really happy to shoot So's film on film. We were planning to shoot my next film on film, which is a bigger budget, but now that I shot on the red, I think I'm thinking twice about it. So, because it does offer a lot of opportunities in terms of the time it saves and the money. The money difference is significant? I mean, just the, you don't have to tell me the exact numbers, but in terms of just like, what it would cost an independent filmmaker to make a feature-length film on film versus now with the RED camera. Obviously, there's a lot of variables there, but just from basic production costs, significant? Uh, yeah, it's insane. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Really. 40 hours, I mean, 40 hours of your footage yeah, was Yeah, but we also 000. shoot a lot of... We shoot a lot. We so shoot a lot. You shouldn't, I mean, we you know, just, yeah. hopefully maybe you don't shoot as much as we do. What do you mean we, by a lot? We like shot what? 40 hours for So's film. This and this is our shortest. Like Salt, we shot 100 hours of footage, and mm -hmm. um, in between days was 60 hours of footage. And So's film was 40 hours of 16 millimeter, which, like I said, was about $100,000. Mm -hmm. And this and on, on the red, um, we shot 40 hours, uh, and I think you got about 10 hours on a terabyte. And terabytes are about $400. So four of those is like six, $1,600 versus 100,000. that I don't know if that includes the processing mm -hmm. and the transfer. And then at the end you got to go back. It's a it's it's like a lot of so difference. Quite significant. I mean, six figures versus four figures. Yeah. I mean that that's a huge difference in, yeah. in and 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 one can only imagine where that where that technology will be in, you know, another year or two. That's the thing. That's the thing. Yeah, and you rent. I mean, you would probably rent a red. I mean, I don't know if some, the camera costs about forty thousand dollars. That's really cheap to buy a camera, but it's like really expensive for somebody on their own to buy it. So you would either rent it, um, which is comparable. I think it's probably you could get it cheaper than renting a film camera. Um, the lenses are though expensive, but the thing is, is that there's uh, Panasonic HD. Uh, you can put thirty-five millimeter lenses on that. That camera is around six or seven thousand dollars. Technology is changing. The new uh, Nikon um, still camera shoots 24. They shot uh, Slumdog Millionaire with that. Someone was just showing me this camera, the XLR, SLR. Yeah. Uh, wait, was it Canon? Yeah. Or was it Nikon? I'm sorry. What'd you say? It's a Nikon. It's a, Nikon. It's a D90. Yeah, D yeah. yeah. It shoots. It shoots. It yeah. shoots like that. We're the. I'm just. Tell me if I'm rambling. But <laughs> no. Well, I want. I'm looking. I'm looking to my. I'm looking towards the audience here because because I want to see if. Uh, any of the filmmakers in the audience, you've, you've given us a lot of insight on the specifics of the filmmaking process. And if there's anyone here in the audience that has a question about that or another aspect, uh, raise your hand and we do have a microphone. I think we have um, just a few minutes left, so I want to try and get in. Someone over here has a question, I think. Right in the going? center here. Great. So we'll go here, and then the gentleman with the hat also has a question, so we'll go to you next. Hi. Hi, how's it going? Um, thank you both for being here and making your films. Um, this question is to So, and you mentioned earlier about uh, deciding quickly not to go with a talent agency um, when you arrived in Korea. So I'm just curious if you could talk about maybe your process or how you approach working with children um, who aren't accustomed to maybe working in film and elaborate on, on that a little bit. Yeah. Um Working with Hien and Sunghee was actually comparably easy than, I mean, easier than I thought it would be. You know, I think when I was developing the story for a long time, I would hear nightmare stories from people, you know, filmmakers who keep telling me, don't work with kids and don't work with animals. Those are two things that you don't touch, you know. So I was incredibly hesitant and afraid of doing this film. And, um, 
But with that being said, you know, when um, after we cast, we didn't have any time to rehearse with the kids. We were just basically going right into production. So I had a couple of, uh, you know, play dates with them where we would go to the park or go, you know, go to the go to a noodle restaurant and eat together. So a couple of things. And then we talked about a couple of uh, requests that I had for them for the shoot. And they were curious about how the film would be. And I just said, you know, just follow my instructions and these are four or five rules that you always have to you know follow when we're shooting and one is um, don't look in the camera don't look at me repeat what I say and don't leave the set unless I say cut you know so the um, two girls being Korean you know being very obedient they follow those rules exactly and then um, when we started shooting our cat I mean our crew members were only 12 people and then for all the interior shots, there were like four or five people in the room with them, so it's always very intimate and safe. And uh, basically, they never read the script, and they didn't know what the scene was about, but when they showed up in the morning, I'll tell them, okay, this is the game we're gonna play, you're gonna go in this corner, bring the piggy over to her, and have her put in some coins, you know? Or like, okay, here's a suitcase, we're gonna pack the suitcase up now, or, you know? So it was mostly task-oriented, and for those scenes that were more demanding of emotions, like if they have to, hit a certain emotional moment, you know, such as crying or anxiety or, or uh, screaming or whatever, I would, um, I would use different tactics, you know, I would use Big Ant to help me in elicit that kind of threatening emotion or, or I would, you know, have the younger girl like take the toy away from the older girl and like see if they'll fight or, you know, just a little games that I could think of to, you know, push the scene along, so. I think we have time for one or two more questions. Hi, thank you for being here. Uh, I wanted to ask, so uh, initially you said that um, you got financing two weeks before you actually shot, and I just wanted to know what the process was to um, get a producer and then to get the financing and how you went about doing that. Thanks. Um, yeah, we, well, for the project, in the beginning it was just Brad, as a producer on the film from the, you know, when I started writing and stuff. So we are always like the original producers on the, on the project, but this film being shot in Korea and stuff, we needed more help. So we brought on um, Jay, and, Jay Van Hoey and Lars Knudsen and Ben Howie. So there were four producers on the film and what they did was actually kind of amazing because um, I don't think there are very many people who are willing to invest into art house cinema and particularly foreign language cinema and you know and unless it's like romantic comedy you know and has some sort of cachet in Europe or in Asia or something or you know some horror film from Korea will get financing but not a small intimate story about two kids you know so it was a really a long process but it just happened you know and I have to say we were incredibly lucky to get the financing I think if we were trying to raise the money now for this film it would be nearly impossible so yeah I think we had one do we have one more I saw a guy over here with the hand up but um, I just wanted to know if you utilize storyboarding at all, um, how the, the process of selection for your the person that scores your films, and if you have any dis, uh, differences of opinion when it comes to cutting as far as the music goes in your films. And, and, and Should I talk about it first? Um, yeah, in the beginning for Treeless Mountain, I had a composer that I wanted to work with, and I sent him the script, and I, you know, I wanted some sort of score to be there. But uh, along the way, we kind of lost touch, and you know, because it was it was such a long process from the script being finished until we started shooting, so we lost contact. And then when I was editing, I realized that the film actually doesn't need any music or film score. So there's actually no music in the film except except for the in credit song. So that's the only music that's in my film at the moment. But I'm totally open to, you know, working with a composer for the f for my films except this film particularly 
really didn't need any so or want any so I had to yeah go with that Brad you did I storyboard no I don't um, storyboard I'm a terrible drawer I went to art school to study painting but my teacher said ah do something else so <laughs> you uh, yeah I mean we work in the same way I I thought you did do some drawings though anyway uh, no. not maybe some preliminary drawings just to make sure you're on the same page with the cinematographer but we worked with the same DP uh, um, on, on all our projects we've worked with people by now we've worked with them one or two times so uh, that, that language has sort of been developed on my last film I, I went to each location with um, Eric Len who's in New York DP and it was the first time we worked together and he brought uh, his camera and took a still of every single location at this sort of lens uh, length that we wanted to use so we had this book of, of it's essentially like a storyboard book without the actors in it which was a great resource to have, and um, and neither yeah neither one of us have ever worked with a composer before because usually we just use the diegetic music music that's in the film. So we we try to think of it as like well, how would this sound in this space? You know, if if we use music. Well, as we wrap up, I'd love to hear uh, what each of you are working on now. Are you writing? Are you planning to make something else? What what are you? What stage are you at, if any, in new projects? Um, I have this film called Jack and Diane, which is the one that was put on hold, and now we're starting that again. And it's uh, Olivia Thirlby's in it, and um, and uh, hopefully we sh we could, yeah, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> we're raising the money and we're recasting the other part. And shooting on the red camera. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, <laughs> maybe I just have to draw it at the end. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. I'm just writing right now. So I was talking about how painful the process of writing is for her, and she said that for you it seems to be so simple. She said you write thousands of pages, and she writes ten. Yeah, but I wrote a thousand bad pages, and she writes ten good ones, so she gets further. No, that's not true. <laughs> On that note, we'll stop tonight, today. Uh, thank you to both of our guests, Brad thank and So, for being here. Invite you to check out their films. Thanks. We'll be back at 6 o'clock with uh, Ty West. Thanks. And please see Treeless Mountain this weekend if you can because it's an important weekend for the film. Uh, independent films, a lot of them, the first weekend, I don't know if you know this because I didn't know this before I started, but the first weekend sort of sets the tone for is this film going to make it or not make it? And is this film going to show in more places or not? So it really, really does make a, t a difference if, if you could see it today or tomorrow. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs>